Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with J. Daniel Sawyer. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Mike Luoma. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our chance to sit down with some great creators and check out and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to try to improve our own. Absolutely, because if you're not learning, you're dying. That's the rule around here. If you're not busy learning, you're already on your way out the door. So, Mike Luoma, my 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 podcast brother, my my literary kinsfolk and and wingman for this episode, dude. It's been a while since we had you on the show, and I'm glad we got a chance to rectify that. It's always a pleasure to have you on, man. Well, thank you, Dave. It's great to be back. I I love this because it it always kind of supercharges my own creative batteries to to get into the fray like this. So thank you again for having me back. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, and it really does, doesn't it? There's something about you know digging into somebody's creative process that that just really creates an opportunity for you to assess your own creative process and and refine, fix, improve and and just keep moving forward. It's like jet fuel for your for your creative mojo. It's you know the little light bulbs are always going off as I'm listening to everybody kind of get into the the idea mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let's fire up a few of those light bulbs. Uh Mike, I want to I want to introduce you to this gentleman who is uh, poised to assume uh the guest host chair. May I? Absolutely. Uh, what do we got? What do we got? Well, first of all, it's important to note that this is his third appearance on the round table, which is pretty incredible because no one has been on the round table three times. That's one thing. And he's also the first dude to actually be on the round table. He is our first guest host ever. And, and oh. that's pretty awesome as well. And, you know, I get when he was on the second time I took a swing at doing the big stalkerish intro and it, it was good but oh baby sit back Mike I've, I've got stuff for you here man we're gonna roll this puppy now I want to lead off with two quotes the first is from the 18th century poet Alexander Pope who said a little knowledge is a dangerous thing so is a lot And the second quote is from Big Bang Theory, where Leonard observes that Sheldon is one lab accident away from being a supervillain. Now, I'm not implying that our guest host is at all dangerous or that he has the potential to be a supervillain. All all I'm saying is, thank God he took up writing, because the alternative is too horrifying to contemplate. Uh, Now, he grew up very poor. And as a young child, his family moved from Dallas, Texas, to the San Francisco Bay Area. His father taught at colleges and grad schools, so there was a natural reverence for knowledge and scholasticism in the household. His mother grew up in the Amazon jungle, so she had kind of a unique perspective on what was important. Unless someone was bleeding out or had bones exposed to open air, she was really just content to let everyone handle their own own problems. Uh, She was often heard to say, I used to swim with piranha and caiman, which is a breed of alligator. If a five-year-old girl can do that on her own, then you can handle this problem yourself. 
So here's this urban kid with no money, with access to knowledge at his fingertips and the freedom to do anything that doesn't end up killing someone. (laughs) Things can go either way at this point. Uh, By the age of six, he had learned to shoot his first BB gun, had his life threatened by a rattlesnake, which he killed with a rock, and had written his first computer program. Now, he'd also seen Star Trek Wrath of Khan, The Empire Strikes Back, and War Games, which, if you think about War Games, is a damn scary movie for someone that age. Now, two years later, he's eight years old at this point, he had started elementary school, which kind of sucked because apparently having a Texas accent in San Francisco back then was an invitation to be teased mercilessly. But while most kids were proud to have moved past the stage of eating paste, he had already been exposed to gang violence firsthand, had met a white-collar criminal, wrote and illustrated his first comic books, had read Lord of the Rings, and began writing his first novel at eight. And he finished that novel at the age of 12, 25,000 words. Now, also by that age, he had finished making his first audio book. He had narrated the adventures of Sherlock Holmes onto tape for his sick brother. Uh, He had made Star Trek fan films at 12, mind you, with his family's home video camera, read Darwin's Origin of Species for the first time, watched the Berlin Wall fall, read his first Ian Fleming Bond novel, and had started a business, in this case, a paper route franchise. Now, I could go on, guys. There's more. There's a lot more. But it all boils down to the fact that as a child, our guest host had limited resources and unlimited imagination, had encountered very few boundaries to what he could accomplish, and was growing up in a community and a world where rules and laws were fluid at best. Hell, at 15, he had been privy to firsthand information to some of the darkest deeds humans can inflict on each other. It's not that he was living in a different world. He just saw it more clearly at 15 than most of us are prepared to accept at 30. Now, as you might imagine, high school was not fun. In spite of a cool English professor who encouraged our guest host's literary aspirations and some dabblings in theater and choir, uh, that was unfortunately offset by a truly wretched math teacher who soured him on math for years, and he also got arrested. Now, granted, he was spinning donuts on the school lawn in his Volkswagen bug, uh, but, you know, there was that arrest, and... See, the thing is, and this should come as no surprise to anyone, high school for our guest host was incredibly boring. He was surrounded by people who were still wrestling with limitations and issues that he had left behind years ago. So in the second half of his sophomore year, he opted to test out of high school. He passed the test and was ready to move on. Now, it was around this time, at roughly 16, when he began sketching out the rough elements of a sci-fi story that would later become one of the cornerstones of his literary canon. And he learned to surf. 
which is kind of badass too. Now, with high school wrapped up early, he launched into a 10-year adventure tour of colleges, six different ones to be precise, during which he earned nine-tenths of a bachelor's degree in literature and two-thirds of a master's degree in clinical psychology. And along the way, he enjoyed the first printing of his work in The Wineskin, a poetry journal at George Fox College around 95, and... Also, it bears mentioning that institution was a place that he also did a great deal of work for the school newspaper. Now, this tour of higher education culminated in a discovery that many writers before and since have made. Acquiring that sheepskin is not a prerequisite to literary glory. And with that revelation firmly tucked under his arm, he was ready to move on to the next thing, which included making music videos, an audiobook of his own work titled The Coffee Service, writing and producing audio dramas, short films, drafting feature film scripts, and pretty much working his way through every form of storytelling medium in existence. But it wasn't until 2006 that he scored his first professional writing sale. Now, it wasn't fiction. It was an article on DVD mastering for Linux Journal, which was actually a cunning coup on his part because he had written the piece for a DVD software job he'd already been paid for. Got paid twice for the same piece. Dude is always working the system. Now, he had written a novel and was shopping it around, collecting professional rejection letters, as you do, uh, which... If you think about it, it must have been frustrating as hell. I mean, he had mastered pretty much everything he laid his hand to, but here was something that wasn't yielding to his will. And then he started attending sci-fi conventions, connecting with publishers and editors. He received his first commissions for screenplays, short stories, and articles. He even started a fiction podcast and began engaging with that incredible community that opened up to him. Around 2010, things started clicking. He got his first professional fiction sale, a short piece titled Chicken Noodle Gravy for Escape Pod. That year also saw his inclusion in the Apocalypse Sex Anthology. He self-published two short pieces, Lilith and Buried Alive in the Blues, and, perhaps most significantly, the self-publishing of the first Clark Lantham novel titled And Then She Was Gone. 2011 saw a flurry of more titles introduced onto the digital bookshelves, including the first novel in his Antithesis series called Predestination. Now, that was the story he'd been sketching out since he was 16. And he also released a little piece called Down From 10. Now, I mentioned that last one because it was my introduction to audio fiction on the interwebs. And, of course, it couldn't just be narrated. Oh, hell no. He rocked at full cast, with voice actors performing the dialogue of of all the stories, which was really an epiphany for me and made the stories totally pop. He has since self-published numerous novels, story collections, two masterful non-fiction works, Throwing Lead, a book about firearms for writers who know nothing about firearms, and Making Tracks, where he shares his wealth of insights and knowledge into the process of recording audio. Both of these books, in my opinion, are must-haves for any aspiring writer. Recently, he kickstarted and produced the audio versions for many of Gail Carriger's short fiction works and her YA science fiction novel titled Crud Rat. And I had the singular pleasure of participating in those productions, and I can enthusiastically recommend them to anyone who is a fan of Gail Carriger's writing and superb audio productions. Now, I would love to claim this as another notch in my stalkerously researched introductions belt, but I can't. 
Nearly all of the details I just recounted to you came from our guest host himself. Some of it's out there tucked in hours of podcast interviews, but most of it isn't. And that's kind of a shame. And someday I really hope it is. I mean, he was our first guest host when Brian Humphrey and I started the Roundtable podcast years ago. We were shooting for the moon and we hit a star a strange star that shines darkly and with an intensity that can be overwhelming at times. But like all stars, he burns with a fire that lasts a very long time and whose radiance is a point of light by which we can navigate in the darkness. His favorite movies are The Man from Earth, The Zero Effect, and The Maltese Falcon. He has a beach dog named Trixie that he's teaching to surf. He can be bribed with Macallan Scotch and California Neapolitan-style brick oven pizza. And once, he was mistaken for Tad Williams' best friend at a party. By Tad Williams and his wife. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome back once again to the big chair here at the round table, J. Daniel Sawyer. Dan, holy crap, man, we have years of history behind us, and I'm looking forward to the years of future stretching before us. I'm delighted we were able to find some time and get you back in the chair, man. Thank you so much. Oh, man, your introductions keep getting worse and worse at this rate. You're going to make a million on tabloid journalism. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's all part of my all part of my scheme, my, my big, big plan here. So oh, what one minor correction. The story was chicken noodle gravity. Oh, did gravy. I say gravy? Holy you crap. Did. See, it's even written on my script as gravity. And it's like, clearly I'm hungry. No. I was going to say, aren't you, are you hungry, Dave? That must be it. That must be it. I haven't I haven't had my proper meal for the day. Yes, Chicken Noodle Gravity, uh, which I actually I remember listening to on Escape Pod and was fabulous. So thank you for that. Yes, I like to make sure technical accuracy is is good in in those intros. So very cool. So um, I'm, I'm curious, Dan, before we dive into this, I, I just want to ask one question. Um, yeah. Now, back at right after that DVD mastering for the Linux Journal, uh, you, it says you had written a novel and were shopping it around and was collecting rejection letters. What, what novel was that? That was Predestination. Oh, okay. So this was like a first draft, the first final draft that you started shopping around? Oh, no, it was, the, it was the version that I was podcasting. Oh, okay. Rejection okay. letters are part of the game. Oh, uh, totally. And in fact... I wound up actually getting an offer on it, but at that point I was looking at uh, self-pub and I got the offer and I was like, uh, what rights are you guys going to want? Nope, not willing to sell those. <laughs> yeah, and that was that would have been back in the day when there was a lot of uh, discussion about what rights uh, authors should be giving away because the digital revolution was firing up and the audio fiction was obviously rolling out too. And that really kind of changed the game for a lot of people. Yeah, and it's if you're an author, it's something you always want to think about, no matter who's offering. And you've spoken at the, about that on many occasions on the Dead Robot Society, on the Full yep. Cast podcast. Some excellent yeah. stuff I out there, friends. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's his bag. All right, well let's 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 dive into this. I, I want to dig deeper and deeper. Someday we're gonna hit bedrock at the bottom of Dan Sawyer's creative process, but it's. It's not going to be today. We'll try. It's scary down there. <laughs> it's a dark, dark place. But I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go ahead and set the timer, which we will, of course, promptly ignore. And let's get into our 20 minutes or so with Dan Sawyer. Dan, real quick, what's what uh, the the latest Clark Lantham novel? 
uh, uh, what number is that in the series? What's it called, and what's the what's what's the number uh, in the let's series? See what, um, Blood and Weeds, and that's number seven. Number seven out of a total arc of how many? I'm planning for twelve. Twelve books. Okay, now here's my question: uh, uh, the 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 antithesis progression is a mm-hmm. multi-novel, in-depth, intricate, rich, complex conspiracy, global, galactic politics. The Lantham mm-hmm. series has been going on and will go on for a total of 12 books. Uh, uh, and in speaking to you, I know that you have an arc that you're evolving for this. And yes. almost every writer that comes on to our show, almost, not every, but most of the guest writers that come on are anticipating writing a series. Uh, uh, they, they, they see, they feel that there's a big story arc to be told. And if anybody can guide them through that process of preparing and building a multi-stage, multi-book story arc, it would be you. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit as to how you evolved the Lantham series and the uh, the antithesis progression uh, and, and what writers can do to prepare and build a foundation for a multi-book series. Well, the um, Lantham series was a, was a short story that escaped. Okay. I'm not kidding. I was, that happens. You know, I, I, I had uh, read Liberation Biology by Ronald Bailey and was floored by some of the stuff that at the time was just on the edge of possible and is now actually being done, um, like species de-extinction and other stuff like that. Mm. And I thought that it would be really fun to work some of those ideas into a short mystery story and thereby dip my toes into the water of mystery from my home turf of science fiction so that if I completely failed at one, I'd still have an interesting story from the other point of view. Okay. And as I got going, I realized that it's not really a short story. It's going to be a novella, but I keep it short enough to be able to send off to Ellery Queen and whatnot. Well, I blew through that one and I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I've got a novel. I got to the end of the novel and I realized I had left a, though I had closed the story, I had left a big dangling thread and I was, I was actually sitting at a, uh, sitting at a kitchen table with Gail Carragher. We, when we lived in the same neighborhood, we would write together a couple times a week and I get all the way to the last line and I went, oh, fuck. (laughs) And she said, what? And I said, I just created another series. Damn it. (laughs) I went (laughs) after I got done kicking myself in the head for creating more work for myself. Well, now let's let's pause right there. How did that happen? I mean, what exactly is it that occurred in the story that made you realize oh crap i have a whole nother story going on what was that process dig into that a little bit well in this case it was i i got to a certain point in writing it that i realized i needed a second bad guy and then when i got all the way to the end i was at the climax i decided um just on the fly that it would be more dramatically satisfying if lantham did not catch the second bad guy okay so I get to the end of the book and I realize the se- and the second bad guy is out there. Not only that, but he's threatened Lantham's life and said, you know, you're, as long as you don't come after me, I won't come after you. So basically you ended the book leaving a gun on the mantle that hadn't right. been fired. Yep. Well, it, it had been fired, but it had missed, but it hadn't been taken out of play. 
right? Okay, okay. So um, I got to the end and I was, you know, the most dramatically satisfying thing was for this particular bad guy to escape. It, if I had tied it up, it would not have felt credible. So moving forward through the progression, it was like, oh, crap, this is a short story. No, it's an, oh, okay, it's a novel, fine. And then, oh, crap, no, there's another novel here. Boom, boom, boom. At what point did the the accidental stumbling on of a, of a new novel stop occurring and you start looking at a very structured arc to take you through to 12 novels? Well, in um, that, that evening, I went home and uh, started complaining <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And Kitty said, just sit down and sketch this out. So I sat down, I sketched out, you know, screenplay style, a couple of slug lines and one paragraph treatments for two books Okay, that would follow on. It was going to be a three book series. And then I was going to get back to what I should be doing, which is finishing the antithesis books. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. Then a few weeks later, I went um, off on a road trip with Gail to hit some conventions in the Northwest, and we got involved in some very uh, annoying traffic accidents. And so we we got snowed in in Seattle, and then we drove out through the snow, and several cars drove through us on the way out of town, and uh, wound up um, getting home and well, actually, on the way back, we stopped in Portland for a few days, and so I wrote the second book in Portland. I was supposed I was going to do a short story, also escaped, became a short novel. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I've got an extra book in the Lantham series. That's okay. And I get home and I start work on what's supposed to be book two it is now book three. Get halfway through it, realize that there's a bit of character work that needs to be done for Lantham to be in the place he needs to be to finish book four. So I stop book four, write book three. <laughs> then go back to writing book four get to the end of book four and realize that i've left him in a perfect place to pick up um to pick up and drop in a, another book that i had written years ago that never worked i tried as a short story as a novel and as a screenplay this story and i could i was always missing an element to make it work turns out that element was lantham so i pulled that out redrafted it from Lantham's point of view, adding him to the mix and suddenly it worked. And that was book five. <laughs> okay. Um, at this, uh, but at this point I'm, I sit down and I go, okay, I'm five books into my three book series. <laughs> and I've now made this arc complicated enough that I need several more books to get Lantham around to where he needs to be in order to take down the bad guy in the final book. And so I sat down with my pile of ideas and I just started pulling things from the pile going, okay, that's a Lantham book. That's a Lantham book. That's, and so that's where the stack came from. Okay. So you have a stack of, of stories, ideas that are just kind of sitting there waiting for, for lightning to strike. Yeah. I keep a, uh, one of those sticky note apps on my computer. Mm. And anytime I get an idea, I do a, I do a slug line and a one paragraph treatment and then leave it alone so that I can get it out of my head and keep working on what I'm working on. Nice. There, there's a, there's a writer's tip for you right there. Awesome. So I periodically go back through. So that's, so the Lantham thing sort of evolved organically out of telling the story. Okay. Um, that's the way to do it. Because, really? Oh yeah. Because if you do it like I've done it with the other series, <laughs> Here's a cautionary there's, tale, friends There's a reason that it's been five years since book two 
We'll be back with more of our conversation with J. Daniel Sawyer after this brief promotional break. The most powerful men in the world. The horrors created by mad science. Tentacle of monstrosities from beyond the veil. The elder gods themselves. None of these evils can keep a cult consulting detective fresh or St. Clair from the case. Whether his clients come from the high-rises of Manhattan or the depths of the Undercity, Escher won't stop until the case is solved. From the mind of Scott Roche comes the casebook of Escher St. Clair, featuring two complete tales of the fearless detective and his stalwart companions as they face off against the terrors beyond the understanding of normal men. Find out more at www.scottroche.com or look for the casebook of Eshoo St. Clair at your favorite online booksellers. The master, he commands it. Let's get back to the conversation with J. Daniel Sawyer. Okay, so walk uh, us through Antithesis then. So Antithesis had, um, I basically had a four book series, but I didn't have an ending. And I realized that a film, uh, indie film I had done that never quite got finished because we ran out of money um, was basically the story that ends this series. So I tinkered with it a little bit and that's book that's going to be book five so i've got book five written in a draft form from years ago and then book one and two well i wrote um i, f- I figured that out after book one i got to the end of book one i'm like where am i going to go with this so i sat down took took a night developed developed 30 pages of notes wow and then sketched out book two on note cards, which is what I do when I'm doing a screenplay. I do every scene on a note card. And it's just the plotting for the antithesis books is so complex that I have to approach them screenplay style. So I get book two plotted out. I get book three, four, and five sketched. I sit down and I do book two. And it actually didn't take it, – it felt like it took a long time, but that's because I took this detour to do Lantham in the middle. But it winds up being 250,000 words long. That's moving. a little long. That's yeah. a little long. And that's that that's that's as published and moved really fast. Okay. People read it and they're like, this moved faster than predestination, which is half the length. <laughs> I get done with it and I had just it was one of those books every every so often you get a book where you wind up pouring your heart and soul into it just because it's the right time of life for you to be writing that book. Okay. And it hits all sorts of personal uh resonances with you, and so you just more of you goes into it than normal. And um I got to the end of it. I'm like, oh, boy, that's a relief. I released it. It was great. And ever since then, I've been scared of book three. Why? Because I don't know if I can do what I did with book two again. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because it took and so much out of I don't want to let you? the audience down. It's not because it took so much out of me. It's because it was a – in terms of craft – and this is another cautionary note because as an author, you can never really tell, but you get these impressions and you act on them at your peril. Like I did, um, in terms of craft, it feels to me like sort of a high watermark. Now I'm told by my readers that I've gotten better with each book, which is great. But when I look at it, I'm like, I don't know if I'm that good anymore. (laughs) 
yeah. Uh, the, and, the, um, the author having, questioning of their skill. This is another benchmark of the writerly process. And having, but having had it planned out like that, it piles, um, it piles a different kind of pressure on than if you're letting it, uh, letting it evolve organically. So, uh, yeah. If, if I so, how are you working through that? Well, I'm clearing my plate right now. I'm finishing up Lantham uh, Seven, and then Lantham's going on the shelf for a year. And I'm uh, writing, uh, finishing up Suave Rob Three, which is almost done. Which uh, the Suave Rob audiobooks voiced by Dave Robinson brilliantly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the first one's available on Audible right now. Second one later this year in production. Um, yep. 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 Then once those two are done, I'm not allowed to write anything else till I finish book three. All right. Um, well, I know fans are going to be delighted to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been actually using the Suave Rob books and uh, the Resurrection Junket and a few others, which are all in universe, to um to get myself regrounded, so I can actually do this thing because nice. oh, it's scary. <laughs> For some reason, I, I've I've got that that old saying: you know, mountain. Then there is no mountain. Then there is. Yep. <laughs> so very so, true. Right now there's a mountain, but there won't be, you know, a mountain once you start. Yeah, it's like climbing Olympus Mons on Mars, right? It's all it's just a long uphill hike. You haven't done that, have you? <laughs> no, no. Okay, no. all right. Just checking. I wanted to make sure I hadn't uh, left anything off of your intro there. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. So, so basically, your advice uh, uh, to any writer uh, uh, planning a you know twelve book series is don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, it's it's not that it's not that you shouldn't write twelve book series. It's that uh, planning them puts a kind of pressure on you that it takes a far more advanced writer than I am to deal with maturely. Okay. Okay. No, that's good advice. You were saying that the, the Lantham books grew more organically, though, and, and that mm -hmm. seems to be a, a way that you could grow a series even if you didn't mean to. Absolutely. It sounds like you didn't mean to. Right. That, that I thought, was a fascinating glimpse of, into uh, stories that get away. How often do your short stories get away on you, Dan? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, the novels I've got that are short stories that escape were uh, Suave Rob, which is now a three-book series, The Resurrection Junket, Clark Lantham, Ideas Incorporated, and actually Predestination was originally a short story that escaped, so most of them. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> uh, down, down From 10 was a screenplay. Down From 10 was a miniseries I wrote for Canadian television for a company that went bankrupt. Okay. Now, what is it about working in a screenplay mode that lets you organize your ideas a little bit more solidly or, or, or makes them make more sense to you? Um, I don't know if they make more sense to me. It's... Because uh, screenplays have uh, particular structural demands because of running time and uh, and th and budgetary considerations and things like that, you have to approach writing them in a more artificial way. Not it's not so much a formula as it is just it's like writing a stage place. There's the acts are much more structured. With a book, you you write. Act one until you discover, oh, I'm in act two now. Cool. Um, <laughs> with a screenplay, if you, you don't finish act one by page 20, you're fucked. So the structure that's inherent in that format, in the screenplay format, because it is, you know, act one wraps up by page 20, act two by here, act three by here. Uh, it forces you to compress and distill 
those those sort of squishy writerly story bits into a, dis, a very specific format, which I would imagine is kind of like distilling the 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 essence of what's cool about the story uh, as much as possible. Well, it can be. It's screenplay. Uh, a screenplay like approach is really good for some kinds of stories, and it's death for other kinds. Um, Unless you're writing screenplays for, for example, a multi-season television show like Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you couldn't do Song of Ice and Fire in a movie. If you tried, you'd be an idiot. Right? <laughs> yeah, not that people um, wouldn't, but yes, you're right. Or if you look at the Dune film, you know, uh, David Lynch's Dune and then the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries' Dune. Mm-hmm. Dune does not work as a movie. Now, I loved the Lynch film. But I loved the Lynch film because it gave you the feel of Dune rather than worrying about the events, right? It was right. kind of a slideshow of Dune. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. But Dune is an, a novel that is so centered on the internal motivations and machinations of everybody involved that you can't put it on screen. And even even putting it into, even pouring it into a screenplay structure, you lose the thing that makes the book special. So it's the screenplay approach is not appropriate for for most novels, but when it is, it can be very useful. Yeah. Now, Mike, let me ask you just real quick. You've written graphic novels as well as novels for your Vatican Assassin series. Do you find the same, uh, I don't know, distillation or, or structuring? Does, does writing as a graphic novel uh, also inform your writing for the novels themselves? You know, it does. And it's funny because Vatican Assassin, the novel started out at, at, in screenplay mode. I actually wrote a screenplay of this idea that I had and then it turned it into a novel. So I, when I heard Dan talking about working in screenplay mode, it you know, immediately was like, whoa, this is kind of weird. I've done this kind of thing. Then actually taking Vatican Assassin and re-adapting it or adapting it to a different script mode, which was the graphic novel script mode, so the artist could draw it, mm-hmm. was a whole different distillation, and and it did. It forced me to really cut a lot of things down and really change the pacing of the whole story um, because it was a different format entirely. Awesome. And, you know, All right, real quick. Plays before- are three acts, novels are five acts, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, real quick, before we ask, go on to the, to the next question, Dan, just real quick, uh, uh, mm-hmm. one or two resources for writers who have heard this and say, God, maybe I should try writing a screenplay for my book before I write the book itself. What, what resources, what books out there should they lay their hands on uh, uh, to understand that process? See, uh, the, find the number of a good therapist around here somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that first, uh, yes. <laughs> the, in terms of just ba- the basics of how screenplays are put together, the best book in existence is J. Michael Straczynski's script writing. Okay. Um, I just got to chill, man. That was that was the one I was using when I put Vatican Assassin's screenplay <laughs> together. Cut this and, out. And, you guys are brothers from another mother, man. <laughs> and he, he, he goes through every kind of script and its particular formatting, structural, and dramatic demands from films to television series to miniseries to comic books to radio dramas, the whole bit. And so it's absolutely essential for anyone who's wanting to tell a story in script form. Awesome. Very cool. He is absolutely correct. <laughs> Mike affirms this choice. Absolutely. Mike, what about uh, uh, graphic novels? Did you did you have any resources you were drawing on to 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 break into that, or was that just observation on your part? Um, actually, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud is yes. the 
go-to source to, to turn to. That will blow your mind. If I, I had done comics on my own. I had, and I, I'm an artist, but not really a good sequential artist. And I'm a writer. And I hadn't put those things together to the degree that I, I could once I read that book. It really was like a, a mind-blowing, uh, opening-the-doors-in-the-brain kind of book for me. So I... I can't recommend that one highly yeah. enough. Yeah, I, I, and I will affirm that. That was a mind blower. That was absolutely a mind blower. Really, it, and it increases your appreciation for the art form, uh, uh, as well as pulling back the curtain and really showing some of the magic that happens backstage on that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And one other thing, uh, too, there's a, a Writing for DC Comics by Denny O'Neill, Dennis O'Neill. Oh my and God. that surprisingly is really good, and it goes through like the uh, the three act structure and things, and how it applies to comics. So that's okay. a really good resource too. Awesome, awesome, very cool. All right, fans, jot all that down. That's the wonderful thing about podcasting. You can hit the rewind button and <laughs> grab your pens and paper, write that stuff down. Both at all excellent resources. Very cool. All right, Dan, we're 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 running out of time here, but but I I want to ask one last question before we before we let you go, um, right. and. Let, let's talk about the storytelling format, uh, because in, in this day and age with, with YouTube, with Audible, with transmedia storytelling, every format is an opportunity for, for writers. And the barriers that used to exist for those formats have pretty much disappeared. Where, where do you... Where do you see your storytelling going? Where, what are you investing your creative energy into to, to drive your storytelling into this whatever the hell next age is that we're moving into? Are you taking any steps or making any, any plans in terms of how your storytelling is going to evolve with all this new technology? No idea. I, mean, I, keep, I keep my eyes and ears peeled and as stories come up i think well what you know what'll this uh work best as um how much time do i want to put into it you know well uh, where's where's my return a lot of it's a business decision some of it's an artistic decision okay um i've got some projects that i've got on the line to develop for YouTube particularly, those are mostly nonfiction, basically because I don't have the money to finance a proper film. Okay. I would love to. I would. I've got a few projects I wouldn't mind um, directing or producing if I got the financing for. But I'll be perfectly happy if some someday someone else picks up the film option for it. Okay. It just. Yeah. It. It. I've got. I've got some role playing games in mind that I'd like to do at some <laughs> point when. The opportunity presents itself. Um, the curse of being a multifaceted, multi-passioned creator in this day and age. What, what, what a horrible burden to bear. <laughs> well, it's just you, 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 you pick what's right for that particular story and then you decide if you've got the time or money or marketing plan or whatnot to invest in that particular story at this moment. And then you go from there. There you go. Again, an organic approach. 
that makes sense. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, the the uh, uh, the, the clock has has mounted uh, uh, an, an orbital freighter uh, uh, mounted with deck cannons, and they're all pointed at me at this point. Uh, so I'm assuming that means that we have run out of time. Uh, at least I hope that's what it means. So <laughs> that or the mescaline has finally kicked in. Um, either way, Dan, <laughs> dude, always a pleasure to have you sitting in the, in the guest host chair. Thank you so much for making the time, bud. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mike. There was there was some writerly goodness uh, uh, distributed in that twenty or so minutes of of discourse. What's what's your takeaway for this particular episode? What are you what are you scribbling into the into the margins of your notes? Well, I like the idea of uh, taking down sticky notes. You know, using yeah. that sticky note app and doing a slug line and a one paragraph treatment just to to take the idea, write it down, get it out of the way, so you can keep working on what you are currently working on. That that to me made a lot of sense. I like that. Yeah, very much so. And and as anyone who's actually gotten into the writerly vibe can attest, uh, it's not that you d- you don't have enough ideas. Uh, ideas happen all too easily, especially once you start writing a single story, as Dan's <laughs> Lantham series can attest. Uh, so it's a question of of as you say, marking them, anchoring them, providing some tangible reference to them, so that when you actually do have time, you can get back to them and they don't provide a distraction yes i yeah, couldn't agree yeah with and and usually i find those start popping up at the closer i'm getting to finishing the project so it's like all of a sudden these new ideas start coming in and they're like no no I, you gotta go away <laughs> and that's a whole psychological study right there <laughs> very cool yeah for me it was it was kind of that affirmation of, of the organic growth cycle of pretty much anything in this case we were talking specifically about dance series but I have found this time and time again, and Dan affirmed it beautifully in in that discussion, that do what you love. Focus on what you're working on. Don't focus on this this big picture, this grand arc. You know, if you invest your your creative process uh, fully into whatever this story is or this novel is or whatever, then you have to kind of, it's almost a matter of faith when you get right down to it, that that if the story has the merit and the strength and the cojones to be something more, then by God, it will. And and all the planning in the world is not going to change that one way or another. And that's, you know, that's very affirming. It's also very liberating. You no longer have to sketch out your 12 book arc, just let it happen. And then when you release book 12, you can go ahead and lie and say, yes, I had this planned all along. And you can go ahead and trot out whatever you need. So awesome. Very cool. Well, friends, there was writerly goodness to be had. I could hear your pens scribbling out there in the potosphere, and that's fabulous. Now, the cool thing is, is the fun does not stop here. The brilliance, the the, the froth continues. In seven days, we'll have Dan back. We'll have Mike back. We will add into the equation a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who will, who will set the table for a brainstorming feast, and I promise you we will all be right. And, and and quite sated by the time that's all done. But that's a long time. I mean, that's seven days, and I know it's a week. God, it's so cruel of us. Mike, dude, help us out here. What what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to, to fill that time productively? I'm going to say pick up that J. Michael Straczynski script book because yeah. that will get your juices flowing. Read that book and 
and start trying to work through some of your ideas using those techniques in script writing. That's awesome. And and I couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, that, that really, even if you don't write a screenplay, knowing those techniques can help you as a novel writer. Excellent advice. Absolutely. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the <laughs> hell yeah. Look look for the fabulosity out in the world. And friends, I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast.com and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.